Our scripture this morning comes from Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day, night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the world of his, word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves knew, know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Good to see so many of you this morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. Uh, we continue this morning in, in a series that we've been doing for a number of weeks now, um, a number of weeks, a number of months really, and we're coming to the end of our time here in the book of Acts, which was written by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And uh, as I looked, you know, we kind of plan these things out in advance. As I looked, and we, what we do is we make sure we don't want to just get in a rut and stay somewhere forever, but I, I really wanted to make sure that as we preach through this book, we didn't miss this passage. And that's probably because it's a passage that's used at ordination services for ministers like me. Uh, it's, it has a lot to say about pastors and what pastoring is. Uh, but what I really love most of all is that really, the book of Acts really puts this man, Paul, on display. He's going about doing 
all of these really amazing things. Everywhere he goes, God is working. But here in this text, we don't really so much see what he's doing as we get an insight into uh, Paul's heart, into the motivational core, what motivated him in his ministry and what was hard, his hopes and his fears. And that's why I imagine pastors like the text so much, because it is a text about what it's like to be a pastor in a lot of ways. But here's my, here's my thing. I've got to win you to this argument for this to be a profitable time for you this morning. Although it is a text that really describes what life as a pastor is like, it is not just a text for pastors. Now, here's my argument. One of the most ancient memories in our faith is the story about two brothers in Genesis chapter 4 and the danger of rivalry, sibling rivalry and envy. Cain and Abel, you remember this story probably if you're familiar to the faith. They both bring a sacrifice to God, and God is pleased with the, the sacrifice of Abel, but not with Cain's sacrifice. And as a result, Cain is filled with jealousy, and the story says he strikes his brother down in cold blood and kills him. And later, when the Lord comes to Cain, he comes and he asks him a really simple question, Cain, where's your brother? Now, I imagine the question took Cain by surprise, and I also imagine it would take some of us by surprise as well, because Cain wasn't ready for it, because he didn't have a right understanding of what the real relationship and the nature of the relationship was between he and his brother. Uh, he, he, you know, it teaches us that God expects that we would be keeping tabs on one another. And Stain, it's the head. Instead, Cain responds with cool indifference. Do you remember what he says? He says... Am I my brother's keeper? Now, I mean, there's so much there. There's so much just in that little story. First, it, it's a story that reveals how aloof and hard-hearted we can be towards one another. How's Lucy doing, you know? How's Jim doing? And we're meant, we're meant to have an answer, but too often the only answer we can come up with is, I don't know. And maybe it's because we're too busy. Or maybe it's because we just don't care, but we're supposed to have an answer. We're always supposed to have an answer to the question. We're supposed to know what's going on with one another and to be intimately involved. But Cain answers God, am I my brother's keeper? He doesn't know. He doesn't know it, but the, question, but the answer that he gives is, is really, or the question, he answers with a question. And it's a rhetorical question. I mean, the answer is yes, of course he's his brother's keeper. And that word keeper there in Genesis chapter 4 is the word that's used other places in the Bible to describe a shepherd or a pastor or an overseer. You see verse 29? Paul talks to the overseers, the Ephesian elders and pastors who are overseers of the church. And that word overseer, it literally, literally means to oversee, to take responsibility for. And the lesson of the story is this, that we were meant, we are meant to watch out for one another. Now I know you and I, we like to think of ourselves as fairly competent people. Of course, you know, we run into trouble from time to time, but for the most part, we've got it handled. The Bible, the Bible, however, would say that that lacks, an, that lacks unbelievable self-awareness. That if we think of ourselves that way, we're really self-deceived, because in truth, we are sheep. And that's the metaphor, if you look here carefully in Acts chapter 20, that dominates the passage. The church is a flock there, verses 28 and 29. Uh, and so we are to think of ourselves in this way. And the thing about sheep is that they are stupid and they're defenseless. And they're always getting themselves into trouble that they can't get themselves out of. So the Bible the Bible's insulting. 
It's an insult when we're called sheep. And the message, the message the Bible is trying to get across is you and I, we need looking after. Every single one of us. And so the question becomes, well, first, do you know that? Do you live as if that's the case? Do you live as if, as if you're sheep, as if you're really not as, as competent and self-aware as you might think yourself to be? But secondly, if we really are people who need looking after, then, then in the church we come together to make sure we get the looking after that we need. And so the question becomes for us this morning, I think, who are you shepherding? Who are you overseeing? Who are you caring for in this way? Who's, who is the brother that you're the keeper of or the sister that you're the keeper of? Because, of course, you can't be doing this for everyone, and that's part of the wisdom piece that you have to work through. So God has put into your life someone. Who is it that God has brought and that you can say, that, that person, I'm called to that person. That's the person that God would have me do this with. Now, if you're a pastor like me, then it's your, your job to care for the church that God gives you charge over. But if you're married, you're more than just a spouse, you know, Christian marriage is people that, that see themselves more as just married. They're shepherding one another. If you're a parent, you're more than just a parent. You're to be a shepherd to your kids. So who do you, this is the question, who do you particularly feel responsible for? You can't be called to everyone, so who? Start thinking. Get some names in mind. Write them down on your piece of paper at the top there. Because I want you to be thinking through these relationships as we walk through this passage. Now, we no longer feel responsible for one another in any meaningful way. Our society's kind of moved past that. But we're meant to. And being redeemed, if you're a Christian, God intends to give you some group to belong to. It might be a church. It might be a small group. It might be a reunion group or people in the neighborhood or your kids, you know, um, travel baseball team. And, and these relationships, these groups, they become redemptive to us when we go beyond using one another to get our own happiness, and instead we start taking real responsibility for each other. That's what pastors do with their churches. They take spiritual responsibility for people under their watch. That's what you see here, right, with Paul. It's what you see. And it's the kind of pastor that I want to be, but more importantly, it's the kind of person I want to be. And we need a, it's amazing to me that what we're getting inside this, this dynamic here, these men falling on one another and weeping because their hearts are so intertwined with one another, and yet the needs of the mission are so great that they're compelled beyond their selfish desires in that radical community that's being developed there. This is the heartbeat of the mission that we see going forward here in the book of Acts. And so we need, we need a church. We need a movement full of people who will act this way towards one another. People ask me all the time, how can I help? Well, how can you help? Listen, here's my thing. If you want to help, if you want to help the ministry of this church, don't necessarily go look for a ministry you can lead. Don't worry about that. Let me give you one piece of advice. Become a person like this who can bear the weight of people. The, the work of the church is to bear the weight of caring for people. And quite honestly, pastors burn out because you guys are wonderful, but you're a heavy load to bear. It can crush you, and so bear the load of people. Paul says here in verse 28 and 29, watch yourself, he says to these, to these Ephesian elders. Watch yourself. Do you know what that means? Do you know what the application right at the beginning of the sermon this morning is? What we're called to and what this text is going to help us do, the number one thing, the biggest concern in your spiritual journey should be this, that you become the person that others in your life need for you to be. That you're becoming the person that the people in your life need for you to be. The people God's called you to care for. And Paul really shows us the way. Now, you send your, your pastor on 
<clears throat> vacation, and he comes back with a five-point sermon. And so there are five things, okay? So lesson learned. But all five of them are here, and so we want to talk about them briefly. But as we think about becoming the kind of people that the people in our life need for us to be, you see five things from Paul here. You see, this is really the shepherd's heart, is these five things. I'm going to change the word task to telos. I'll explain that in a minute. So a shepherd's heart really operates from these three things. A telos, from truth, from tears, from trials, and coming out of good theology. All five, starting with T. So you see them there in your outline. We're just going to walk through them together really quickly, okay? So if you, what it means for us to become the kind of people that we need that the people in our life need for us to be, they hear the five components of a shepherd's heart that God would transform us into people that actually can begin to shepherd. Let's look. First, uh, that, that first one there is task or telos. Now, I use the word telos because it means end or goal. Telos is the finish line, and if you're going to care for people well, if you're going to care for yourself well, there has to be a finish line. There has to be a telos. Now, the context of Paul's words in Acts 20 are really important. What's the context? Paul is saying goodbye. Now, why is Paul saying goodbye? Well, because there's a mission. Now, we're told in the text that Paul's trying to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost. That's verse 16, if you have a Bible. And the journey to Jerusalem was taking him right past Ephesus. He had been to Ephesus in the past. He had planted a church there. We looked at this just, just in the last few weeks. Uh, and so here his, his, his journeys are yet again taking him. He's, he's sailing right past these people that he loves so dearly. He sends notice to them. Uh, he doesn't have time to stay but he wants to see them one last time because he had to keep going. And he knows, I'm probably never going to see these people again. The mission was taking them to new places. And so he asked them, he sent letters and said, would you please come and meet me so that we can have a few minutes together. And here they are gathering, uh, weeping together uh, because they're having to say goodbye. Now, here's the lesson. And it's just this, that the best relationships need a mission. Their relationships are meant to be an end. Uh, relationships are meant to be a means to an end, sorry. And the end is the glory of God. The end is the mission, to know God and to make him known in the world. And it, so if you make the relationship the end and not the means, then you do a couple things. The first thing is you turn it into an idol. And in turning it into an idol, you ruin the relationship. It happens all the time. Take marriage, for example. We're supposed to be shepherding one another in marriage. When I marry people, one of the things I always say is that the marriage needs a mission. And the best marriages are the ones that exist for something beyond the marriage. I mean, if you want, if you want an image that captures what marriage is supposed to be, it is not two people facing one another, gazing longingly into one another's eyes and getting lost in one another. No, rather, it's two people standing shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand, both gazing at the same horizon, the same telos. Because marriage is a means to an end, not the end. A man, ladies, I hate to tell you, a man needs a bigger orbit than a woman. And a woman needs a bigger orbit than a man. And if you try to make marriage the thing you live for, you turn it into an idol and you ruin the marriage. Because marriage is not designed to bear that kind of weight. It's not the telos. It's... Marriage is the vehicle that gets you to the telos. It's the same with friendship. If friendship is your goal, you know, it's been said, then you'll never have any friends because friendship has to have something to be about. There has to be a shared goal. And so if you look at the great friendships in the Bible, there's always mission. And the mission brings people together in deep, committed relationships. And, of course, 
If you think for one minute, you realize all of the great adventure stories that we love, right, that I talk about all the time, all of the great adventure stories, you know what they really are? They're really just friendship stories. Lord of the Rings is about, is, isn't, about, isn't about dwarves and dragons and epic battles. It has those things, but what, it's a story of a friendship. So is Harry Potter. So is Tom Sawyer. I mean, don't forget Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Right? Every, every story and book that we love is a friendship story because the best relationships are those where there's something more than the relationship for the relationship to be about. The relationship is the servant of something else. You're always acting in the relationship in the interest of that greater goal. If it's not there, if there's no greater goal, then it's just an idol and it won't work. And so if your relationships aren't working, those, the, that list of people that you feel called to, that God has called you to, to be a shepherd to, if those relationships aren't working, let me suggest one of the reasons might be because the relationship has become something more than a means to a greater end. Christianity is mission. And so Christian friends are friends that are on mission. And where there is mission, what we learn in Acts 20, where there's mission, there are goodbyes. I mean, shepherding means there's a telos, there's a goal. And when you get to the goal, as these men do here, you say goodbye. And so in the passage, the telos of the relationship between Paul and these Ephesian elders was a church plant. They came together. I mean, and you can see, aren't you, I mean, are you startled at how their heart, I mean, we're having a session meeting. Would you pray that our session meeting this afternoon looks like this meeting with these guys here? Weeping and crying over one another, wouldn't that be awesome? bunch of white men in a room weeping and crying over one another. That'd be amazing. Because their hearts were knit together in powerful ways. To, to, and they loved one another. Paul loved these people and they loved him. Uh, and, and, in, and in planting this church, something happened with them. But now, now the church has been planted and it's time to say goodbyes. And goodbyes can be emotional. They can be difficult. But they're absolutely necessary because goodbyes are the measure of the mission. Now, we just got back from family vacation. When you're on vacation, especially when you get to kind of the stage where we are, you're always in search of the perfect family photo because, hopefully, you're having so much fun that you want to capture the moment, or you're not having fun, so you want to take a picture so you can look back on it and, and kind of feed good, good vibes back into the moment. So we're always on the we're always on the the uh, the, the search for the for the good photos because you want something that you that you can have that you can always remember what it felt like to be there. But uh, this time it was a little different for us because um, our oldest is now 16, and so you guys told me this would happen. But but when they get to be about that age, you that have little ones, when they get to be about that age, there's this enormous clock that is ticking in the background of your life, tick 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 tick, because you know. It's, it's, it's counting down seconds, it feels like, because you know your family's going to be disrupted, and they're going to leave and go off to the places God calls them, and so it seems like only yesterday that we were celebrating one child after another too quickly at times, arriving into the world, and now we're entering the phase where one after another, they're going to start leaving us, and so it's hard, and so, so we got to get the photo, <laughs> right? we got to get the photo because we're desperately trying to capture the moment, and isn't, I thought about that. We say that. Isn't that a funny word we use there? To capture the moment, to fight against the relentless onwardness of time. 
But, but that's just not how life works. It's not how relationship works. Listen, re- life is a story, not a photo. It's a story arc. It's not a photo. It's a dynamic thing. It's not a static thing. It's moving on. And so goodbyes are inevitable, even necessary. If there are no goodbyes, there are no mission. And so in parenting in particular, I'm thinking about this in my own life. You know, the goodbye is the goal, isn't it? It's the telos. The purpose of the relationship is not the relationship. It's for the purpose of the parent-child relationship is for the child to grow up and say goodbye. And so all of the good times captured in family photos, those moments, listen, those moments aren't the goal. They're wonderful and good. And we should celebrate them and have them and pull them out anytime we want to to remember. But they're not the goal because the goal is the goodbye. Because why? The mission. Children are arrows, the Bible says, Psalm, 30, Psalm 127. And parents must draw back the bow and aim them at this lost and broken world and let them fly. And so, parents, your kids, and your relationship with your kids cannot be the telos of your parenting. If so, you will turn them into an idol and it will ruin them and you. So the first thing, to shepherd one another in all of our different roles, we have to know that our relationships are a means to a greater telos. And so you approach your relationships, you know, spouses, parent-child, friends, not for your sake, but always with the larger goals in mind. So we have to relate to one another uh, for the sake of the great goal, God's mission in the world, his glory at stake in the world, and that will mean goodbyes. And so as we send kids off into the world, as we send core groups out to plant churches, as as we send families that we love and we dearly miss to Nicaragua, for the sake of gospel ministry, even as God calls us on to new things and beyond long-standing relationships that we cherish. Those are all hard but good things, and I am challenged. I am so challenged by Paul's words in the text. Look at verse 24. I'm so challenged by what he says here. He says, I do not count my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry I receive from the Lord. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I love you men. And our time together was precious, but there is something bigger, and that's what has my heart, and I've got to be busy doing that thing. And you do too. Man, isn't that hard? You feel how hard that is? And so there's a telos. But then secondly, the second component, then if, there's a, if there has to be a telos, the second component of a shepherding's heart Shepherd's heart is uh, that it also has to involve truth. Now listen to Paul here, okay? Uh, Verse 20, look there. He says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house. And again, down in verses 26 and 27, he says, I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So shepherding is is taking people towards the, the telos that God has for them in their life, uh, it's getting them to, to the place where God wants them to be. And one of the mechanisms, one of the main mechanisms of doing that is that you have to be committed to truth-telling. Paul says, I didn't shrink back from teaching you all the hard things that you needed to hear. And I'll tell you, that takes courage, doesn't it? He says twice that he didn't shrink back. He uses that, that terminology there. Uh, and, it, and the reason he uses that word, those words there, is because it takes courage to speak the truth. Because I don't know if you've experienced this. I have just a little bit, but generally people don't appreciate it when you do that to them. I mean, given the choice between flattery and truth, which one are you going to go with? That's an easy choice, isn't it? And so there's a tension, there's a temptation 
to shrink back from saying things that are hard for other people to hear, and it's, it's a besetting sin for me. I'd much prefer that you like me. That's way more important to me than doing good to you by speaking the truth. Do you know how gross that is? You should be shaking your head and saying, I'm going to go find another church. Because I'm way more concerned that you like me than to do good to you. And so pray for me. We live in a culture that is increasingly allergic to truth and truth claims. Truth is viewed as cowardly and compassion as being brave. Think about that. So stop for one minute. You'll see what silliness that is. That our society, what it does is our society now has, has framed the whole conversation, giving us a choice. You either have to choose truth or compassion. It's got to be one or the other. And it defines those terms as being mutually exclusive. And so Christianity refuses to do that. Stop trying to change people, the culture says. And accept them as they are. Stop, stop trying to ram your version of the truth down other people's throats. That's arrogant. And I would agree, ramming truth down people's throats is arrogant, but offering the truth gently, compassionately, that's the most loving thing you could possibly do. See, the culture says, the culture says choose love over truth, and here's the problem. Christianity clearly teaches that you can't love without truth. That unless you know the truth, you won't know how to love. Jesus said you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free, John 8, 32. So, according to the Bible, according to Christianity, love and truth aren't mutually exclusive. They're interdependent. Now, C.S. Lewis, almost 60 years ago, really astounds me. 60 years ago, he wrote an article. It's called, uh, the article is called Man or Rabbit that addressed this problem. And, and he was dealing, even then, with people who, um, who were becoming less and less interested in truth. They just wanted to know what works. And now, decades later, you have churches who pride themselves on being anti-doctrinal. I mean, churches, churches make a living on this stuff. They get people, you know, they get all kinds of people to come because people don't, people don't want the doctrine. Uh, they, they, they boast of being practical, not theological. And, and the sermons give practical advice about how to live your life and so forth. And C.S. Lewis is attacking all of this. He says that Christianity is truth. And if Christianity is true, then it is impossible that Christians who believe the truth and that those people who don't believe the truth would be equally equipped for leading a good life. Now, here's, here's, here's what he says. He, it was, it's really an astounding metaphor, I think. He says the difference, there's a difference that knowing the truth makes. He gives this analogy. He says, suppose you found a man on the point of starvation and you wanted to do the right thing. If you had no knowledge of medical science, he says, you would probably immediately want to give him a very large, solid meal. Now, nurses in the room, what's the problem with that? He says, you, you, in other words, you see this person with this great need, and the first thing you want to do is to try to meet that need. You give him as much food as you possibly can. But, but Lewis, Lewis says, but if you do that, the result will be that he would die. And that's what comes of working in the dark without truth. So think, he says. Here are two people. One believes that human beings are going to live forever, that they were created by God, and, and, and so built that they can find their true and lasting happiness only by being united to him. And over here is another person who believes that human beings are the accidental result of the blind workings of matter, that they are only going to live about 70 years, and that the greatest happiness of which they're capable is fully attainable by good social services and political organization. He says... These are two different sets of beliefs about the universe, and they can't both be right. 
the one who is wrong will act in a way that doesn't fit the real universe. And consequently, with the best intentions, the one who is wrong in all of his helping of other people will be helping his fellow creatures only to their destruction. That's really insightful. That's really powerful. What he's saying is, I want, listen, I, want, I would love to just throw truth out and just be compassionate because then everybody would love me. That would be great. But if you throw truth out, there's no compassion left. Because if you just throw truth, truth out the window and for the sake of being compassionate, then all of the good you're doing, probably all you're doing is just bringing people to a worse state they were than they were in before you started working with them. The only way to flourishing is through the truth. So truth matters. I was so struck reading Titus in our community Bible reading program uh, this past week where Paul keeps talking about sound doctrine. Hold on to sound doctrine, he says. And that word sound re- means healthy. It literally, it literally is the Greek word hygiene. Right? So you can't say theology isn't important. Doctrine is the only prescription for spiritual health. Truth matters. And the culture is playing by the wrong rules. And we can't keep letting the world offer truth and compassion as a choice. Sin is deceitful. It makes you blind. It makes you stupid. And that means that the people who have summoned up the courage to try and speak truth into your life, even if they've done it clumsily, those are the people who absolutely love you the most. Don't hold them, don't hold them accountable for how poorly they executed what they were trying to do there. The people who, are, who summon up the courage to say hard things are the ones that love you the most. And those are the people that you need the most. And what about you? What about me? Can we resist the urge to shrink back? It's a scary, it's a scary little, little uh, image there in verse 26 where Paul says, I did not shrink back. I spoke the truth of you, verse 26, and therefore I'm innocent of your blood. Isn't that scary? He, he's, he's reading his Old Testament there. And in, in Ezekiel 33, there's this, uh, there's this image of the watchman in Ezekiel 33. And literally God says that they're, if, they're, if you're connected, if you're related to somebody, if you're responsible for somebody, whether it's a child, a spouse, a friend, you know, or in my case, you know, people that you're pastoring, if, if there's somebody that you're connected to that you're responsible for, if there's a truth that those people need to hear and you don't tell it, God says that he will put his blood on, their blood on your hands. And there's a lot at stake here. So there's got to be truth. Now we're going to do it clumsily. Let's forgive one another for that, but let's not, but let's not be afraid. Let's not shrink back. And here's, here's the third thing, okay? So you see there's a telos and there's truth, but then here's the third thing that kind of rescues the second point that I just made. And the third component of, component of a shepherd's heart is not only truth, but also tears, truth and tears. So he says there, verse 19, I lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, And then down in verse 31, again, he says, Remember that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish you with tears. The truth matters, but what the truth is also matters. And Christian truth doesn't produce people who yell and scream and rant on social media. It produces tears. Now, two things here. First, Paul's tears mean that the person with a shepherd's heart is a person. I'm just so, this this is just right where I'm living, right here. That Paul says, I, I, I wept, you know, and you see the weeping here, and Paul says, I was with you with, with tears. It's describing a person who has decided uh, that in the interest of love, that they're going to live with other people um, with a broken heart. I mean, if you, if you invest in anybody, if you give your heart to anybody, they will at some point, in some way, break your heart. And so it's easier, isn't it? 
It's easier to stay disengaged. And then what we like to do is we, we love to do this. We stay disengaged and then we lob truth bombs in from a distance. Through a computer screen. Or to decide to really get, you know, to decide to really get involved and give your heart away to other people. And to let them in. Your, your agreeing, the contract, the contract you're signing is that you're going to live with a broken heart. You're choosing. Listen. You're choosing to do life through sadness instead of will. And that takes a tremendous amount of courage and emotional strength and energy, but, but it's what you see in Paul, and it's what Christianity makes possible. See, to have people reduce you to tears, and yet you refuse to give up on them, you refuse to shut off your heart from them even though it hurts so bad, it's so much harder to confront a problem with sadness than will. Because in sadness, you have to admit you're not in control. You can't change things and make them any different. You just have to live with them the way they are and still love. Now, how does that relate to what I just said? In Christianity, truth. Please, in Christianity, truth is not a vehicle of the will. Do you know what I mean by that? You might not be able to. I know you feel it. I know you can feel it when it is. But in Christianity, truth is not a vehicle of the will. Speaking truth from sadness instead of will is very different. It has a very different effect. So you see, truth matters, but also what the truth is matters. And here I would make an argument for the superiority of Christianity because here's the thing. The culture is such an allergy to Christianity because they've experienced Christians wielding the truth like a weapon. They see Christianity as a belief system which turns people into smug, self-righteous warmongers. And so the culture says, let's get rid of the whole truth, the whole notion of truth, the idea of truth itself is the problem. And so, here's what we've done. We've turned against religious people with all of the smugness and self-righteousness and warmongering that we've accused them of. <laughs> thinking that, uh, thinking they have the truth has made Christians hateful towards those who don't believe and throwing out the truth has made those who do that just as hateful towards those who do believe. And this is why I think what we see from Paul here is so important. We learn this, that the truth claims of Christianity should make us soft and humble, not arrogant and harsh. Why? Because, look there at verse 24 and verse 32, because Christianity is grace. Paul says, I testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now I commend to you, verse 32, uh, commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able, able to build you up. So Paul's summary of his teaching is this, it's grace. Christianity is grace, and grace means that God doesn't love you and I because we're better than other people, because we're right and they're Wrong. Grace means God came to us in our wrongness and he rescued us. He came to us when we were wrong and he didn't yell and he didn't scream at us. He didn't condemn us. He died for us. And that profoundly impacts the way we speak truth to others. So Christianity is unique and superior to all other truth claims because it has in its very DNA the ability to produce people of deep conviction but also deep humility at the same time. Truthful people but gentle and winsome and wise. You know, the, the shepherd metaphor in the Bible is always a, a, an image of kindness and gentleness. And so, parents, listen, I promise, I promise you from experience on both sides, I promise you, your kids are going to forget most of the lectures. Now, they need to be lectured, amen? Lecture them. Just know they're going to forget most of it. But they won't forget your tears. They won't forget when you weep over them. 
And so you see the shepherd's heart is one that's full of truth and full of tears. We need to get to the close here, so hang with me. So the fourth, we're going to do this a lot quicker from here on out. The fourth component of a shepherd's heart, we've seen the telos and truth and tears, but there's also trials. And so the sermon's too ambitious uh, to this point. Five points, I need to be quick here. Uh, We're going to come back to this next week, but I want you to see this part of Paul's heart. He says, verse 33 to verse 35, I coveted no one's silver or gold. And you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities. And all these things I've shown you, that by working hard we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul said to these Ephesians, when I was with you, I didn't act with any self-regard. I was only, excuse me, I was only thinking about how to help you. I didn't relate to you. Listen to this. I didn't relate to you on the basis of any need or any demand, but only love. No need. No demand, only love. Now go back to parenting for just a minute. What happens if you parent from a place of need? You'll ruin your kids. You'll be tempted to overindulge them to keep them happy because you need them to like you. You need a good relationship with them. So you can't parent trying to meet your own needs. It doesn't work. Not need, Paul says. I didn't make any demands. Not demand. And when there's no need and there's no demand, then, then there can be love. So why trial? Why use that word trial then to explain this? Well, John Piper is the voice in evangelicalism calling Christians to suffer. Uh, I went to his pastor's conference for a number of years in a row when I was younger in ministry, and I remember one of the questions, the Q&As, an upper-middle-class white guy like me getting up and asking the question that all of the upper-middle-class white guys in the room were thinking. I mean, what does it look like for us to embrace suffering and I thought Piper's answer was so great. He said, he said, you know, what does it look like? What does it look like for you to embrace suffering? He says, why don't just go and love people? And if you go and love people, I promise you suffering will find you. Love is a trial because it has a cross shape to it. It is the choice to put the needs of others ahead of your own, to focus on distribution, not acquisition. It's not a good business practice. To be in the relationship for the good of the other and not for yourself, and that means sacrifice. It means it'll be costly, it'll be messy, it'll be hard. It'll be a trial, but this is what we see in Paul, not only here in Acts 20, but throughout the whole of the New Testament, a supernatural ability to put all of your focus and energy into caring for the other person and not thinking about yourself, not keeping score, not meeting your own needs, not making demands on the other person, just love. Doing whatever the well-being of the other person requires of you with no cost benefit assessment. After all, Paul quotes Jesus as saying, it's better that way. Hashtag blessed. The very essence of God, the Trinity, is overflowing, other-centered love and generosity. It is the devil who is needy and solitary. He is empty and would be filled, but God is full and flows over, and we have been made in God's image. And that leads me to the very last thing, the fifth component, and that's theology. Where does all this come from? Let me just finish there. Uh, Look at how Paul motivates these men, verse 28. He says, and this is the pastor part, which I didn't really want to focus on because I didn't want you to think that you're off the hook because this was talking about pastors only this morning. He says to these men, these pastors, pay careful attention to the flock, care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So he points them to Jesus, doesn't he? And that's because theology empowers ministry. As you shepherd, Paul says to them and to us, remember the good shepherd. Because to love like Jesus, you have to know his love. 
I mean, where do you get the courage to speak the truth when you know it's going to upset people and make them mad at you? They're going to be mad at you. Where do you find the strength to do life through sadness and not will? Because that's exhausting. How do you move towards people and not be needy or demanding, but only with love? How do you have the courage to, to face the goodbyes? Paul says you have to know the good shepherd. You can't be afraid. You can't be needy. You can't go through life just making demands on people to take care of you. And only God's love in Jesus can make you full and take away your fear. You have to know John 10, the good shepherd who laid down his life for you. There is one whose love is so true, who loves you so completely, who is committed to you so thoroughly, Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross to save you. And, and in his love, you don't need any other love. You see, wounded people wound people. But people who've been made whole by God's love are the ones that can go and love others back to life. Do you know the good shepherd? If you do, it puts you in your place, doesn't it? It puts you in your place. To the shepherds in Ephesus, I love this, Paul says, remember the shepherd. And that's the thing. If you're a pastor, you're a pastor, but he's the, the pastor. Parents, if you're a parent, you're a parent, but he's the parent. Married people, if you're married, you're a spouse, but he's the spouse. If you're a friend, you're a friend, but he's the friend. Don't let other people take his place in your life and don't try to take his place in other people's lives. Whether you're a pastor, a spouse, a parent, a friend, whatever the, the point might be, your job is to get people to him, not you. You're not the one they need. He is. So remember your place, but it also raises the stakes. What's the most expensive thing you've ever purchased? What kind of care do you take with that prized possession? The people in your life don't belong to you. You know why? Because they belong to another. And he has bought them, and the price that he paid for them was his own blood. Now, what kind of care should we show with one another who belong to the one who has purchased us with his own life? That's what it means to be the church. There's an old hymn. I think we're going to sing it in just a minute. There's a line that goes like this. The king of love my shepherd is. His goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. Do you know the good shepherd? The one that laid down his life for you? That's the question. Because when you come to know his love, then he will turn you into, into a person that can go and love other people back to life. And so let's just pray that even in these last moments he would make himself known to us. Father, would you come now as we sing this song together? It may be new to some of us, but as we sing it, as we hear the words, as we meditate, we use this time here at the end of the service to be quiet before you, uh, to think through uh, and, and reflect through and sift through your word as it makes itself, um, as, it, as, it, as it kind of comes in and, and comes upon our hearts. Would you help us? Would you, would you open our eyes to see the great love uh, with which you've loved us? Would you take our brokenness and would you make it new and would you turn us into people who have been made whole and in being made whole that could go and, and help others to the same? Forgive us for the ways that we, that we move out into our relationships from a place of need or demand because we've not, we've not uh, solved the problems of our life 
on the vertical axis. We've not sought after you. We've not had our hearts find their rest in you. Instead, we keep looking to the broken cisterns of this world, the broken cisterns of marriage and other relationships that we think will, will finally satisfy us and make us whole. Oh, Lord, we, Father, we need you. Jesus, we need you, the bread uh, from heaven, that if we eat from, of you, we will never be hungry again. We need the living water you offered the Samaritan woman. And you said, if you drink the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. We need to be shepherded by you, good shepherd, who leads us beside still waters, who satisfies us, who causes our cup to overflow, who, who sends goodness and mercy to pursue us all the days of our life and have our hearts rest in you. So in these moments, cause faith and repentance to erupt in us that we might be people that honor and glorify you. And we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. If the, the dangers and the uncertainties and the fluctuations of this week overwhelm you, if they just cause you to want to, if they just, you know, if you just cringe at the thought of them, here's the Christian hope. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus, no matter how your life might change, there is one unchanging reality, and that is that in Christ, there's no condemnation for those who believe in Jesus, that God could not love you, that nothing is going to happen in your life to cause him to love you any more or any less this week. His love for you and his care for you as the great shepherd of the sheep is the great constant that allows you to go and live your life no matter what might change, fluctuate, or, or come without warning. And so lean into that truth as he sends us into the world now and receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.